happy are they who live in the dream of their own existence and see all things in the light of their own minds, who walk by faith and hope, to whom the guiding star of their youth still shines from afar, and to whom the spirit of the world has not yet entered. The world has no hand on them. These eventful moments in our lives' history are too precious, too full of solid, heartfelt happiness to be frittered and dribbled away in, in imperfect sympathy. I'd have them all to myself and drain them to the last drop. They will do to talk of or to write about afterwards. These hours are sacred to silence and to musing, to be treasured up in the memory and to feed the source of smiling thoughts hereafter. Hasnet is one of the great political essayists in English, uh, a great polemicist, uh, a great radical. Um, he's also uh, the first great theatre critic in English. Uh, he made the reputation of Edmund Keane. Uh, he's the uh, first great art critic in English. Um, he's one of the very greatest uh, literary critics, literary essayists in, in the language, as well as, I say, being a, a formidable political journalist. And he comes out of a particularly Irish um, structure of ideas, which really begins uh, with the Ulster Scots philosopher, 18th century philosopher, Francis Hutcheson. In other words, he's the uh, flower of um, Presbyterianism, of liberal Presbyterianism, particularly um, a Puritan uh, form of Christianity which did not believe in the divinity of Christ. Uh, it's what's called Unitarianism or what has been historically known as rational descent. Poet and critic Tom Poland, whose book The Day Star of Liberty, William Hazlitt's Radical Style, appeared in 1998. A fine example of Hazlitt's prose style is this extract from On a Landscape of Nicholas Poussin, an essay first published in the London magazine in August 1821 and read here by philosopher and most recent Hazlitt biographer A.C. Grayling. Orion, the subject of this landscape, was the classical Nimrod and is called by Homer a hunter of shadows, himself a shade. He was the son of Neptune and having lost an eye in some affray between the gods and men was told that if he would go to meet the rising sun he would recover his sight. You see his blindness though his back is turned. Mists rise around him and veil the sides of the green forests. Earth is dank and fresh with dews. The grey dawn and the Pleiades before him dance, and in the distance are seen the blue hills and sullen ocean. One feeling of vastness of strangeness and of primeval forms pervades the painter's canvas, and we are thrown back upon the first integrity of things. William Hazlitt was probably the greatest essayist ever, uh, to write in the English language. He was a, a philosopher, he was a, a painter, a critic, an art critic, a theatre critic, a political radical who engaged in the furious political quarrels of his day, the first three decades of the 19th century. And of course, that was a very controversial time. The Napoleonic Wars were going on uh, and um, uh, Hazlitt was very much a pro-Napoleon figure, not, not alone in, in English society at that time, but uh, it wasn't the popular view. Um, but above all, he was a writer, an essayist, and a very formidable one, a marvellous master of English prose. He was the chap who, I think, invented the term the spirit of the age, and the spirit of the age was uh, the spirit of the French Revolution and how he lived that through. 
former British Labour Party leader and self-confessed Hazlitt addict Michael Foote. Hazlitt recognised politics is a matter of fights between rich and poor. If you don't start with that, he says, you, you won't finish up on the right. He wrote most scornfully of British politicians who take nothing from the rich and give it to the poor. In 1762, Rousseau famously observed in the social contract that man is born free and everywhere he is in chains. He was not alone in noting the prevalence of such a paradox in the political order of the times. For many of the inquiring minds of that period, the identification of such paradoxes was a call to formulate and promulgate more tolerable alternatives for the constitution of civil society. William Hazlitt, who read Rousseau while at Hackney New College in the 1790s, was no exception. Philosopher and Hazlitt biographer A.C. Grayling again. Hazlitt lived in a, in a tumultuous time, a really tumultuous time. His life spanned uh, the American um, Revolution, the French Revolution, the Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars, and the reactionary settlement at the end of the Napoleonic Wars. Now, Hazlitt was a political radical who was bred up at a point in the development of, of radicalism, where if there hadn't been, another one of these great ifs, you know, but if there hadn't been 20 years of war uh, and uh, the costs of the country of that and the tremendous reaction, um, I mean, political reaction that came from the government, um, you know, stamping down on dissent, stamping down on corresponding societies, stamping down on the reform of parliament movement, um, stamping down on um, the, the idea of reforming the, the very structure of the uh, of the kingdom, you know, talk about Irish independence, for example, or talk about new systems of representation. All that was swept aside by the, the, the need of the establishment to keep a tight hold while it was fighting this war. Now, as it came to consciousness, just as these new radical ideas were taking hold, uh, passionately believed them, was passionately committed to them, and saw their defeat one after the other, and saw the defeat of their champion, as he saw it, that was Napoleon. The thing about Napoleon was that he had made himself, that he was bigger than the throne he sat on, that he didn't come into an inheritance of a people. He had he had taken the people you know, by his talents and his abilities. So he was a very different kettle of fish, and that's one reason why, why Hazlitt admired him. So Hazlitt lived in a very, very difficult uh, period of time, much easier, as some of his friends of his early life had done, just to go with the flow, to accept it, not to fight against it, to accept a pension from the government. He never did that. All his life long, he was outside the sunshine of the world, to use a phrase that, uh, that um, Thomas de Quincey used in connection with him, because he was opposed to everything that was happening around him. However, it was not just from Napoleon and the rising star of liberty that Hazlitt drew his guidance. His family on both sides had a tradition in the principal defence of unpopular views. He regarded his maternal grandmother as a prodigy of religious descent. She recounted how she had rejoiced in 1714, at the age of 11, when she heard the news of Queen Anne's death. Anne had been vigorous in her persecution of dissenters. His father, also William Hazlitt, was an Irish-born Unitarian minister. He was posted to Bandon County Cork when William Jr. was an infant. While there, he earned the epithet, the Black Rebel, for complaining of the treatment meted out to American prisoners of the War of Independence by their British captors in Kinsale. Soon after, Hazlitt's father would become the first to preach the Unitarian Creed in the New World. It was in the atmosphere, if not in the detail of such events, that William Jr. spent his early years. Poet and critic Tom Paulin again. 
His father was obviously a very benign but very stubborn man, you know. Uh, he he was plain spoken. He wasn't diplomatic. He, he wasn't politically adept. And Hazlitt, I think, inherited that, as did his brother and his sister. Um, they They had a sort of... Uh, fearlessness uh, in their address to the world. The, the, the whole family had. His, uh, his mother, again a Unitarian, had that too. And when I was writing about him, I became fascinated by the fact that his parents, for the last five years of her life, looked after Catherine Emmett, who was a niece of Robert Emmett's, and were webbed in, I'm sure, with the um, well, the expatriate uh, Irish Republican uh, m- movement uh, in the United States and in England. Um, it's very hard to pinpoint, but basically it's a form of uh, uh, Republican civic humanism, uh, a form of Republican citizenship that, that he represents in his writing. His first endeavour was a, a, a political treatise, a treatise in political philosophy, which he began to write when he was at the Hackney New College in 1794-1795. Philosopher and Hazlitt biographer A.C. Grayling again. And it arose from his thinking about, um, about the church, actually, and about the authority of the Church of England and the, the uh, social and political uh, disabilities suffered by dissenters. And the, the idea of, of responsibility, the idea of of um, the rights. I mean, all these were very fresh and new ideas. The rights of man, you know, had, had been um, pronounced and, and stained with blood, really, by, by the early years of the French Revolution. So a, a dramatic new impulse in thinking about the way you construct a society. And when he sat, uh, you know, in his um, brother's London studio talking to Godwin and uh, Northcote and these others, all of whom were, you know, trying to theorise this new world of of rights, this new political setup, which, of course, died in the reaction, since the establishment in in uh, England was so frightened that, that something like the French Revolution was going to happen here, that they they crushed the corresponding societies and the dissenting movements and all this this fresh thinking that was going on, but but Hazlitt himself, looking for the moral basis for that, um, you know, was was very keen to to see that. Everything that you appeal to to explain a just social setting and a notion of rights had to come back to the ability of individuals imaginatively to grasp how it is with others and why one should respect their interests and needs and take them into account. Why, therefore, it is wrong that a whole people should be the the personal possession of a monarch or or why there should be um, classes in society, some of which have access to privileges that the vast majority of people don't. I mean, these, you know, his, his radicalism in politics all stem from this root sense of the equality of man, something that you recognise when you recognise that your own self-understanding has to be premised on your understanding of others. As a young man, Hazlitt decided on a career as a painter. He had some initial success and received commissions both for portraits and for copies of works by the masters, but to his own disappointment, he found that he could not emulate in his own work the qualities which he could discern in theirs. It was during this period that he met Wordsworth and Coleridge, two scarcely known aspiring young poets. He heard from their own mouths fledgling versions of lyrical ballads and with characteristic probity judged them to be important works. Together, the three took shared delight in the revolutionary ferment of the times. However, this delight was soon replaced for Hazlitt 
by a profound sense of disappointment as both Wordsworth and Coleridge took government sinecures rather than continue their opposition to the reactionary politics of the day. Despite this, Hazlitt would remain indebted to Coleridge for freeing up his powers of articulation, a debt he always generously acknowledged, even in the context of his frequent attacks on Coleridge's apostasies. Um, he gave a series of lectures, tremendously successful ones, at the Surrey Institution um, in about 1818-1819 on the history of English poetry. And uh, when you look at that, you notice that he found a little bit too often, really, that the, uh, the, the, the poets of the tradition... Um, tended to be politically conservative, tended not to question, not to challenge uh, too much of what was going on in their day, partly because their concerns were elsewhere. Uh, they were they fixed their eyes, so to speak, on immortality rather than on the contemporary political issues, but also perhaps because he thought, seeing them through the lens of his experience of, of uh, Wordsworth in particular and also Coleridge, um, that that was natural to the poetic genius. Hazlitt, there's a famous essay, it's really the only essay that uh, literary critics tend to quote, which is the essay in Coriolanus, which he wrote uh, after really having a kind of uh, nervous breakdown after Napoleon's final defeat at Waterloo. And what, what he says is that the imagination is an aristocratical faculty, that's it's monarchical, um, whereas the understanding is republican, but it's prosy. It doesn't have the great sublime runs of the um, monarchical poetic imagination. And he's haunted by that distinction. So that if you look, for example, at the attacks on Burke, they're all terribly decent, you know. Um, They're sort of couth, they're written in perfect sentences that they they, they adhere to late 18th century prose style. Whereas Burke has just torn that rational discourse apart and he's allowed the irrational into his writing. Now, Hazlitt's fascinated by the irrational, he's fascinated by the criminal uh, mind, and he feels that what in those days were called the philosophical liberals, the Benthamites, the utilitarians, the the Whigs, the radicals, the reformers, they neglect the imagination, they neglect the aesthetic, Um, they are just too rational in their whole approach to arguments and to life. And there were a series of articles he wrote for the famous radical paper, The Examiner, a weekly newspaper edited by Lee Hunt and his brother John. And in uh, April 1817, he writes a whole series of articles about French history. And he's obsessed with the fact that over a thousand French Protestants in the, in the south of France who'd been devoted to Napoleon uh, because he, he liberated them from all sorts of uh, discrimination had been massacred at Nîmes and he says in one article of the massacred uh, Uh, Protestants. But their cries still sound in the ears of humanity. They ride upon the rack of history and roll down upon the tide of time. They, the dead, speak to us, the living, with a voice of warning, amidst the slavering cant of Coleridge and the pert gossiping of Southey with shrill eunuch's voice. And then he evokes uh, that great sonnet of Milton's on the, the late massacre in the Piedmont, uh, the, the massacre of uh, uh, Savoyan Protestants. 
and he talks about uh, the voice of outraged humanity, which philosophy, he says, released from the bondage of priestcraft, has heard and echoed back. Voltaire heard it, Rousseau heard it, Milton heard and gave it back in that noble sonnet to our slaughtered Piedmontese brethren. But Mr Wordsworth, though he must have heard of the massacres at Nîmes, has not yet made them the subject of a sonnet to the king, nor has Mr Southey whispered the case of the Spanish patriots in the ear of the Prince Regent. Um, It's desperate, impassioned, uh, polemical uh, rhetoric. I mean, he, he, he's tearing everything uh, apart and he's obsessed with the servility of his generation of writers. How they've gathered round to praise the king, praise the government, and he's out there on his own. If there was a tension for Hazlitt between the force and power of the imagination and that of the understanding, It was chiefly through the Irish essayist Edmund Burke that he found its resolution. For Hazlitt recognised that political beliefs have an emotional as well as an intellectual basis. For this reason, the mannered exercises in logic of Jeremy Bentham and other late 18th century political philosophers were no match for the cascading eloquence of Burke's reactionary essays. While he found Burke's views disagreeable, he considered his style worthy of emulation. English, the language, is is rich in the tradition of the essay, right from the early part of the 17th century until until now. In fact, it, it still goes on. And the essay is, is an astonishing form, really. It's a very protean form. You can do lots of different things with it. And the reason why Hazard is such a master essayist is that he found it uh, exactly the right medium for trying, on the one hand, to discuss things from his philosophical instincts but on the other hand, to argue for uh, an imaginative response to the world. So this this um, apparent tension between imagination and understanding um, that might seem to pull people in, in two different directions, he overcame it by recognising that the, the essay, and in particular a, a version of the essay called the familiar essay, which is almost as if it's somebody just speaking his thoughts in a plotless, directionless kind of way, although in fact there's a lot of hidden structure in, in Hazlitt's essays. I mean, he really was uh, um, masterful at hiding the bones underneath. But but he used this form as, as a way of balancing the demands of uh, um, analysis and the demands of, of fancy. He always thought that... To get a good moral understanding of things, you needed to use your imagination. But at the same time, your thought has to be disciplined. So that sense of discipline and imagination, he really did manage in that familiar essay form to to balance them and make them work together. What's fascinating about Hazlitt is... um the way he pushes prose to the limit. You know, it's a dramatic experience uh, reading the prose. It's also it's 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 very tactile. Uh, uh, it's very imaginative. Um, it's it's an intellectual experience, and he has a classic essay, hardly ever talked about, called "On the Prose Style of Poets," where he's saying, "Well, actually, poets can't really write prose." The best of them, like Dryden and, and Southey, write a perfectly efficient English, but that's it. Others like Milton, uh, they overwork prose too much and uh, the cadence isn't quite right. And he says in one passage, It has always appeared to me that the most perfect prose style, the most powerful, the most dazzling, the most daring, that which went the nearest to the verge of poetry and yet never fell over was Burke's. It is the solidity and sparkling effect of the diamond. All other fine writing is like French paste or Bristol stones in the comparison. 
Burke's style is airy, flighty, adventurous, but it never loses sight of the subject. Nay, is always in contact with and derives its increasing or varying impulse from it. It may be said to pass you on engulfs on the unsteadfast footing of a spear. Still it has an actual resting place and tangible support under it. It is not suspended on nothing. And he takes up uh, an image from... Uh, Henry the Fourth, Part One, Hotspur, as if you know he's walking on the unsteadfast footing of a spear, to get the sense of the uh, intellectual plunge you take and risk you take in reading Burke, and he's saying this is what prose style, great prose style, uh, should be, and it is that sense that um, you're not in a sort of mannerly controlled way being told what to think by somebody who's in perfect control of their medium, but uh, hasn't at once something that is, as it were, out of control. And my own image for this is the great painter uh, Jackson Pollock, um, you know, being inside what you're doing. I mean, Pollock said, uh, I don't paint nature, I am nature. And it is making the prose into something that is like a force of nature. So it is the whap of reading it that, that, that counts. So everything's moving in Hazlitt, and the idea of movement and motion is central to the imagination. It's like a deep, broad river. It has that same sense of, of strong, powerful flow. Uh, and... Um, you see, you think that you see in it just the, the free flow of thought, as though he's got an idea and uh, in, he's going with it and he's following it where it leads. But he had a, a, a both an instinctive and a conscious craft. He knew exactly what he was doing. So it's it's a very conscious style, but it has this feeling of, of free flow, free movement, almost exactly as if it were a river finding its way to the sea. One of the best metaphors for Hazlitt's prose can be found in his essay, The Fight, and no holds by a description of the meeting between two champion boxers, Bill Neat and Tom Hickman, also known as the Gaslight Man. Its matchless vicariousness is presumably among the reasons why former heavyweight champion Gene Tunney thought it the best essay on boxing ever written. By this time, says Hazlitt, they had stripped and presented a strong contrast in appearance. If Neat was like Ajax, with Atlantean shoulders fit to bear the pugilistic reputation of all Bristol, Hickman might be compared to Diomed, light, vigorous, elastic, and his back glistened in the sun as he moved about like a panther's hide. There was now a dead pause, a tension was awestruck. Who at that moment, big with the great event, didn't draw his breath short, didn't feel his heart throb? All was ready. They tossed up for the sun, and the gas man won. They were led up to the scratch, shook hands, and went at it. In the first round, everyone thought it was all over. After making play a short time, the gas man flew at his adversary like a tiger, struck five blows in as many seconds, three first and then following him as he staggered back, two more, right and left, and down he fell a mighty ruin. There was a shout, and I said, there's no standing this. Neat seemed like a lifeless lump of flesh and bone, round which the gas man's blows played with the rapidity of electricity or lightning, and you imagined he would only be lifted up to be knocked down again. It was as if Hickman held a sword or a fire in that right hand of his and directed it against an unarmed body. They met again, and Neat seemed not coward but particularly cautious. I saw his teeth clenched together and his brows knit close against the sun. He held out both his arms at full length straight before him, like two sledgehammers, 
and raised his left an inch or two higher. The gas man couldn't get over this guard. They struck mutually and fell, but without advantage on either side. It was the same in the next round, but the balance of power was thus restored. The fate of the battle was suspended. No one could tell how it would end. This was the only moment in which opinion was divided, for in the next, the gas man, aiming a mortal blow at his adversary's neck with his right hand, and failing from the length he had to reach, the other returned it with his left at full swing, planted a tremendous blow on his cheekbone and eyebrow, and made a red ruin of that side of his face. The gas man went down, and there was another shout, a roar of triumph as the waves of fortune rolled tumultuously from side to side. This was the settler. Hickman got up and grinned a horrible, aghastly smile, yet he was evidently dashed in his opinion of himself. It was the first time he had ever been so punished. All one side of his face was perfect scarlet, and his right eye was closed in dingy blackness as he advanced to the fight, less confident but still determined. After one or two rounds, not receiving another such remembrancer, he rallied and went at it with his former impetuosity, but in vain. His strength had been weakened, his blows couldn't tell at such a distance. He was obliged to fling himself at his adversary and couldn't strike him from his feet. And almost as regularly as he flew at him with his right hand, Neat warded the blow or drew back out of its reach and felled him with the return of his left. There was little cautious sparring, no half-hits, no tapping and trifling, none of the petit maîtreship of the art. They were almost all knock-down blows. The fight was a good stand-up fight. The wonder was the half-minute time. If there had been a minute or more allowed between each round, it would have been intelligible how they should by degrees recover strength and resolution. But to see two men smashed to the ground, smeared with gore, stunned, senseless, the breath beaten out of their bodies, and then, before you recover from the shock, to see them rise up with new strength and courage, stand steady to inflict or receive mortal offence, and rush upon each other like two clouds over the Caspian, this is the most astonishing thing of all. This is the high and heroic state of man. Hazlitt's writings are not only remarkable for the exuberance of his style, but also for the deeply held convictions which underlie them. The style itself was the conduit by which he could pour his mind onto the page and thereby attempt to stir the imagination of his readers. A.C. Grayling again. The one thing that he laid uh, claim to was to have uh, uh, derived an, an original idea and made an original contribution to philosophy. And this was his essay on the principles of human action, published in 1805. And that uh, uh, discovery that he made was that in, in uh, contrary to the, the, the majority thinking and moral philosophy of the 18th century and of his contemporaries, and indeed uh, a, a view which has remained um, potent in moral philosophy since then, uh, our actions are not uh, prompted by self-interest. On the contrary, uh, Hazlitt said, the reason why we um, act with sympathy towards other people is exactly the same as the reason why we act with sympathy to our own future self. And that therefore, disinterestedness, as he described it, that, that, that is, you know, not being um, partisan, is what lies at the basis of all action, of all moral and social action. So I have to be able to understand what it is to act in somebody else's benefit in order to be able to act in my own. And this underwrote his whole moral view and his whole political view. And he thought that people who took the wrong uh, attitude to these things, 
trying to base their view on, on self-interest would end up with the view, for example, like Malthus's or like Lord Liverpool, who was the, you know, the sort of Mrs. Thatcher of his day from uh, 1812 until 1820 uh, and, and, and the prevailing political orthodoxy of the time was based on this idea that what people do is always related to their own self-interest. He disagreed with that and he thought that he had come up with this proof that that can't be so and that we should understand that and then we would act differently. All Hazlitt's thinking and writing had its foundation in this principle, but this is not to say that the range of his concerns was limited. Polemic and criticism were his mainstays, but he was equally at home writing on more mundane matters. Walking, touring, eating, drinking and conversing all find a place. At times, his work leans towards the kind of whimsy more readily associated with his friend and fellow essayist Charles Lamb. It's that kind of... Uh, their friendship, which is so touching. I mean, Lamb, uh, the, the most gentle and convivial and, and, and witty of, of writers. I mean, not, not hard-edged. But when Hazlitt got married for the first time and Lamb was at the wedding, he just collapsed in helpless laughter uh, at witnessing this uh, marriage that he knew hadn't a chance of working, and sadly it didn't. Here's a passage from uh, uh, the essay, famous essay called On Going a Journey, in which Hazlitt talks about uh, walking with Charles Lamb. He says, Lamb uh, is, I take it, the worst company in the world out of doors, because he is the best within. I grant there is one subject in which it's pleasant to talk on a journey, and that is what one shall have for supper when we get to our inn at night. The open air improves this sort of conversation or friendly altercation by setting a keener edge on appetite. Every mile of the road brightens the flavour of the viands we expect at the end of it. How fine it is to enter some old town, walled and turreted, just at the approach of nightfall, or to come to some straggling village with the light streaming through the surrounding gloom, and then, after inquiring for the best entertainment that the place affords, to take one's ease at one's inn. These eventful moments in our lives' history are too precious, too full of solid, heartfelt happiness to be frittered and dribbled away in, in imperfect sympathy. I'd have them all to myself and drain them to the last drop. They will do to talk of or to write about afterwards. What a delicate speculation it is, after drinking whole goblets of tea and letting the fumes ascend into the brain, to sit considering what we shall have for supper, eggs and a rasher, a rabbit smothered in onions, or an excellent veal cutlet. Sancho, in such a situation, once fixed upon cowheel, and his choice, though he couldn't help it, is not to be disparaged. Then, in the intervals of pictured scenery and Shandian contemplation, to catch the preparation and the stir in the kitchen, procol, o procol este profani. These hours are sacred to silence and to musing, to be treasured up in the memory, and to feed the source of smiling thoughts hereafter. You know, there has been a a traditional view that... um writers nourished in a, a Puritan culture um, are in fact not capable of erotic or sensuous effects and of course there's a tremendous eroticism in Hazlitt's writing and the sensuousness of it there is most concretely uh, present in the food images um, the way in which he describes Wordsworth's voice uh, as like the crust on old Port and described Wordsworth demolishing a cheddar cheese. And again and again, he gives you these um, images drawn from, from food without being what we would call a foodie. I mean, they're not fetishized, they come in 
absolutely naturally. And of course, they give great sensuous concreteness to to an image. He's always building images. He he's fascinated by what he calls the unctuous. Unctuous is now a pejorative, but for Hazlitt, um, it's a supremely um, good adjective. Um, he he loves to describe sort of greasy. Uh, effects um, again and again he returns to that um, you know the glistening quality of, of people's skins um, the, the the particular deep oiliness of, of Titian's handling of paint and of course Titian is one of the great masters uh, of oil painting Hazlitt's enduring friendship with Lamb contrasts with the fractious relationships he had with others Like most principled, opinionated people, he quarrelled frequently. In love, he had even less success. He married Sarah Stoddart, a friend of Charles and Mary Lamb, to whom he was ostensibly suited in terms of class, taste and education in 1808. They had one son, also William, and remained friends, though their marriage did not last long. Um, His problem was that he he longed to, to love and be loved. He longed to find that requited uh, relationship which would give him the deep satisfaction which he believed existed out there. He was enough of a romantic in the capital R sense and enough of a reader when he was a young man of sort of fabulous romances, Rousseau and, and others, to, to think that this was a key to happiness in the private sphere, requited love. And he sought for it and he sought for it and he was pretty incurable. He, he liked the ladies very much and he was always falling in love with actresses on the stage. Uh, his friend uh, Patmore said he never knew Hazlitt to be out of love and in fact there's plenty of evidence, although it's, it's hard to find the written evidence, that he was never without some some infatuation going on or some girlfriend. I mean, even at the very end of his life, um, he had a, a lover, a, a slightly sort of high-class prostitute who frequented the theatres and he was, he was keeping her and, and uh, was very fond of her. But the great smash-up of his life was this passion that he developed for the young daughter of, of a landlady of his, Sarah Walker. Uh, he was in his early 40s. She was 19 when he first met her, so in her early 20s by the time this came to a, a terrible end from his point of view. And he was deeply and profoundly in love with her. And, and the, the, the real problem there was that he believed for about nine months or a year that she was in love with him, that she returned his feelings. Because she used to sit on his knee every day, all day long, and they used to cuddle and, and what have you. Now, he didn't take her to bed because he wanted to marry her. This is the, a reflection of this very divided attitude he had. On the one hand, he was very pragmatic about sex. He used to, he used to you know, employ the services of, of uh, prostitutes all the time. Prostitutes of uh, um, the Strand and, and Whitehall knew him very well. They used to come up and chat to him when he was walking home at, at evening, in, in the evenings. There was no problem about that. And in fact, in that day and age, um, you know, people weren't too worried about it either. When he was living in his... Uh, uh, lodging house with Sarah Walker, he would sometimes ask her to go and call in one of the girls of the street for him, and she wouldn't mind. Her mother would do it sometimes. So they were all very pragmatic about it. But he couldn't, although he liked and found attractive what he described as maidservants with uh, red elbows and red hands, and you know, and, and he felt comfortable with them. He always felt very uncomfortable with uh, high-born ladies and with you know, uh, ladies who gave themselves airs and so on. And if ever he met somebody whom he felt a passion for, he would put her on so high a pedestal that uh, you know, he, he'd almost put her out of reach. So here was this great divide. That was uh, the, the tragic flaw in his character that he could never reconcile the two. You, you have to remember that, that what made him fall in love with Sarah Walker was the way that Sarah Walker walked. <laughs> because when she walked away from him 
the first morning that they met, she brought him his breakfast in his room and she walked away to the door with a kind of wavering movement which entranced him. And he looked at her with astonishment and then she turned at the door and looked him straight in the eye and that was it, he'd, he'd had it. The fallout from this ill-starred affair was great. Hazlitt became obsessive and for a time could neither think nor talk of much else. In 1823, he wrote The Liber Amoris, a kind of confessional account of the crisis and the events leading up to it. It earned him few admirers and cost him the respect of many of his peers. Well, the most visible result, I mean, apart from the, um, the, the, the changes to Hazlitt's appearance and, and the decline, his decline in physical health thereafter, is, of course, his notorious book, The Liber Amoris. Anybody who reads it now will be horrified by it. They'll find it a rather disgusting book. It's a man who prostrates himself in the most undignified and unpleasing way before a girl who obviously doesn't care much for him, obviously isn't his match intellectually, uh, you know, and it seems awful. It seems sickly and over-sentimental and, and just horrible. But, of course, that was the point. And so here is a picture, a port- portrait of, of a person flawed, undermined, destroyed, ruined by... A false passion, and you are meant to feel disgusted when you read it. You are meant to you are meant not to sympathise with this man. You are meant to see and to be warned by the horror of this story. But it's a book which everybody among his contemporaries, even his closest friends, were horrified by, and it destroyed his reputation. We are the richer for such catastrophes in his personal life. His description of Hamlet, for instance, is full of that finely graded feeling that could not be created by the imagination alone. Whoever has become thoughtful and melancholy through his own mishaps or those of others, whoever has borne about with him the clouded brow of reflection and thought himself too much of the sun, whoever has seen the golden lamp of day dimmed by envious mists rising in his own breast and could find in the world before him only a dull blank with nothing left remarkable in it, whoever has known the pangs of despised love, the insolence of office or the spurns which patient merit of the unworthy takes, he who has felt his mind sink within him and sadness cling to his heart like a malady, who has had his hopes blighted and his youth staggered by the apparitions of strange things, who cannot be well at ease while he sees evil hovering near him like a spectre, whose powers of action have been eaten up by thought, he to whom the universe seems infinite and himself nothing, whose bitterness of soul makes him careless of consequences, and who goes to a play as his best resource to shove off to a second remove the evils of life by a mock representation of them. This is the true Hamlet. The emotional toll of his affair with Sarah Walker still weighed on him in his final days. In a farewell to essay writing, he recalled the joy he took in the natural world, but had this to say of human interaction. When I can judge of the heart from the face, of the thoughts from the lips, I may again trust myself. This disappointment, along with the hand-to-mouth nature of his freelance existence, were what eventually killed him. We're standing in the the room where Hazlitt died, uh, and it's in a a building in Frith Street, Street in Soho, now called Hazlitt's Hotel, of course, in in honour of this, this great fact. Hazlitt came here in January 1830, and he died here on the 18th of September, 1830. Now, we're two floors up, and we're at the back, in uh, 19th century parlance, that's two pair, two pairs of stairs, two pair back. And it's actually a pair of rooms, not very big, a tiny little bedroom at the back. We're just looking at it now. It's now the bathroom uh, attached to this room. And then what would have been a sitting room. 
and extraordinarily, as we look around the room, we can see it's got its original wainscoting. It's just almost as it was 200, 250 years ago, except, of course, it's very well appointed and well painted and maintained. Um, probably in Hazlitt's day, an open fireplace, uh, a coal fire, it would have been a bit grimier, certainly a lot darker. The wainscoting would have been natural wood. Um, to us, it seems small, uh, but uh, probably to, to Hazlitt living on his own, it was uh, perfectly convenient. His food would have been brought up to him here by his landlady, uh, and uh, he had his guests here too. People used to come and visit him, especially in his last illness. Uh, he had a number of people clustered around his bed on the day that he died. There were five or six adults and, and his young son. Um, and he died in this little room at the back here where the bed was. On a Saturday afternoon, it was, the 18th of September, and one of those present wrote a saying that his voice had already become so faint and hoarse, it was like the scream of birds. Uh, and he talked a little bit. He said, quite unusually for Hazlitt, who never mentioned his mother in any other circumstance, he said he would like to see his mother. He was 52 years of age at this time. And then a little bit later on, he said something that astonished his listeners and has astonished all the rest of us ever since, given how hard his life was. He said, I've had a happy life. And then he said no more, and he died so quietly that they didn't even know he'd gone for a little while. Prost and Prost and nowadays is really never discussed and analysed. It's just kind of endured. I mean, I think also Hazlitt is saying that good prose is one of the representations of, of, of liberty. He is one of the great masters of English prose style. He breaks down the artificial uh, divisions between art and criticism. He makes criticism into an art form. He is what Wilde called the critic as artist. Hazlitt's assertion that he had had a happy life may have confounded his biographers. Perhaps Michael Foote, reading here from Hazlitt's essay Mind and Motive, provides a clue. Happy are they who live in the dream of their own existence and see all things in the light of their own minds who walk by faith and hope, to whom the guiding star of their youth still shines from afar, and to whom the spirit of the world has not yet entered. The world has no hand on them.